Hello, welcome to The Quest. My name is Alan Mulhern. In the last podcast, I gave an outline of the content of the two seasons of The Quest. This included the latest series, The Crisis of Our Times, which began in March 2020. It is my intention in the podcast to come in 2021 to present a synopsis of each of the multidimensional crises, the ten horsemen of the apocalypse, so to speak, so that you may see the argument as a whole. Later in this episode, I wish to consider the current pandemic crisis, its origins and significance. The other crises will follow in subsequent episodes. But first, I wish to add some material on two themes that have arisen throughout this series. The first is the sequence of events of the current crisis. And second is the decline of Western civilization in our own time. The sequence of major events that I suggested in March 2020 were, firstly, the approaching storm, secondly, the storm hits, thirdly, policy response, fourthly, economic and financial chaos, and fifthly, fallout and emergence into a radically changed world. The approaching storm in stage one was the scenario of a new stage of capitalism in the post-2008 period. The storm hits was stage two. This was the pandemic of 2020. The policy response, stage three, especially with regard to monetary and fiscal policy, has been very rapid and very large, occupying most of 2020 subsequent to the pandemic, and has in effect postponed the economic and financial chaos that is due in stage four, while this level of support lasts. However, there is a heavy cost to this. Indebtedness accelerates. Further stock exchange dislocation from the economy results. Greater inequality is created, more moral hazard is engendered, and greater damage to productivity is inevitable. Also, the larger the financial tower becomes, the greater will be its fall. So, the current situation with regard to the sequence is that the pause button has been pressed at stage three, the policy response, which has traded current stability for future danger. It is like a household faced with the collapse of its employment and income, getting out the credit cards so as to continue consumption at the same levels as before, making no plans for restructuring or readjustment, and further jeopardising the assets of the family. This not only ignores the fundamental problems, it worsens them. However, the modern economy refuses to accept that there can be excessive levels of debt, believes low interest rates can last forever, does not give credence to any common sense crossover examples from the household economy to that of the collective economy, and that the accommodating modern magic wand of monetary policy can solve the problems of the financial system and also the economic system. This time, they firmly believe it is different. With regard to the second theme, the decline of the West, this has received attention many times across the centuries, of which the decline and fall of the Roman Empire is the most well known. 
However, the theme of the decline of the British Empire is also worth considering. Such sentiments are not new. Percy Shelley, the English Romantic poet, began writing his poem Ozymandias in 1817, just prior to the expected arrival at the British Museum of enormous fragments of a shattered and fallen statue in the Egyptian desert, a statue of Ramesses II from 1300 BCE. Ozymandias was the Greek version for the name Ramesses. Published in 1819, the poem had the appearance of a marketing coup. As an ironic portrayal of hubris, the illusions of rulers and civilizations, the sonnet reads, I met a traveller from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, near them on the sand. Half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing besides remains, round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare. The lone and level sands stretch far away. It happened that a banker and political writer called Horace Smith was staying with Percy and Mary Shelley over the Christmas period of 1817 to 1818. And he also composed a poem on the same theme, and this was also published in 1819, only a few weeks after Shelley's. No doubt this was one of the competitions that kept people entertained in such circles. Poets, like rap singers today actually, would sometimes challenge each other, choose a theme and write a poem. Shelley and Smith were knowledgeable of the recent finding of this statue in the Egyptian desert in 1816, the year before, and would also have known of its imminent arrival in London. The theme they chose concerning the statue was the description of it given by the Greek historian Diodorus Siculus, who lived around the time of Christ and who described a massive Egyptian statue fallen in the sands and quoted its inscription. King of kings, Ozymandias am I. If any want to know how great I am and where I lie, let him outdo me in my work. In Shelley's poem, Diodorus is the traveller from an antique land, mentioned in the opening line. The structure of the poem he and Smith chose was the classic sonnet form, which is 14 lines written in iambic pentameter, with the first eight lines setting the scene, so to speak, distinct from the remaining six lines, which moved to a different level entirely 
and where the resolution, the meaning or the core of the poem reside. However, Horace Smith's poem had an extra twist to it. The first eight lines, like Shelley's, describe the subject matter. In Egypt's sandy silence, all alone, stands a gigantic leg, which far off throws the only shadow that the desert knows. I am great Ozymandias, said the stone, the king of kings. This mighty city shows the wonders of my hand. The city's gone, naught but the leg remaining to disclose the sight of this forgotten Babylon. Okay, this does not have anywhere near the same weight as Shelley's opening lines. But next, when Horace Smith turns to the moral significance, the lessons for later generations, he does something amazing. After having looked backwards in time, he now projects forwards and imagines a future hunter in what used to be London, after British civilization has disappeared. Smith writes in the second six lines, We wander, and some hunter may express wonder like ours, when through the wilderness where London stood, holding the wolf in chase, he meets some fragment huge and stops to guess what powerful but unrecorded race once dwelt in that annihilated place. Hmm. Horace Smith, a political economist with poetic, psychological and apocalyptical leanings. I think I recognise the type. Now, you may think that such poetic ambitions on the subject of historical and spiritual significance were a conceit, a fancy of the past. After all, the above events of Shelley and Horace Smith occurred 200 years ago when entertainment was scarce and the talents of exposition and performance were widely admired and needed. But this is not entirely the case, for there are still people today more than one imagines, who find a deep need to express large themes in poetry, because this is one of the few ways in which such deep sentiments can be expressed. In the course of my work in psychotherapy, I have known many individuals express beautiful and moving poetry that reflects not only their inner world, but also the situation of the collective. A few lines of poetry can sometimes express more than a volume of analytics. By way of an example, and for those of you who have listened to this podcast series, you may recall that two podcasts ago, on November the 27th, 2020, there was a poem on the Yellow Emperor and the origins of civilization in China. This poem actually came from a suggestion in the Quest Lectures that individuals in this study group might offer something personal concerning transcendent experience. The Quest Lectures are different to the Quest Podcasts, incidentally, and consist of a detailed study of major visionaries from across the ages. 
I responded to this stimulus, this challenge, in a similar way to Horace Smith. Like him, I am aware of the limitations of my lines, and I was also inspired by a poetical and apocalyptical metaphor like he was. But I chose a topic that illustrated how in the warring states in China, thousands of years ago, a spiritual vision experienced by the Yellow Emperor helped bring unity and peace. It is a poem on an opposite theme to that of Oximandias. It is a poem about renewal, both individual and collective, in times of chaos, and it comes from spiritual experience. It is therefore of great relevance, I believe, to our times. I admire Horace Smith, who 200 years ago took up the challenge, no doubt very friendly, with Percy Shelley, one of the greatest poets of his age, of any age in fact, and to have risen to the task as best he could. Of course, he did not have the poetic genius of Shelley, the mastery of words, but his conceit, his ingenious metaphor and imagination, found a way in a few short lines to express what otherwise would have required volumes to explain. The decline of the British Empire, the most extensive at that time the world had ever seen. I wish now to move to the second topic of this episode and consider the present pandemic, its origins and its significance. Like financial crises, pandemics can be found across the history of civilization, though it is only the especially severe that are etched into trauma memory. In some cases, they have had a profound impact, not only on societies, but on whole civilizations. The plague of Justinian in the 6th century of the Common Era, AD, reoccurred for hundreds of years and was probably responsible for 25 to 100 million deaths. This plague played a significant role in halting the unification of the Eastern Empire, Byzantium, modern Constantinople, and the Western Empire, Rome and the Mediterranean. Its long-term effects on European and Christian history were enormous. Justinian's efforts had come very close to achieving a rebirth of the Roman Empire. His Byzantine armies had nearly retaken Italy and the Western Mediterranean coastline. Although the Justinian conquest occurred in 554 AD, their reunification did not last long. As the plague spread around the ports of the Mediterranean, his armies weakened and in 568 the Lombards defeated the reduced Byzantine army in Italy and the Roman Empire was not to rise again. The next power in the Near East and the Mediterranean was to be Muslim. The Black Plague of the 1300s AD, which is a relation of the same bacterium as the Justinian Plague, wiped out one-third to a half of the European populations, profoundly altering the demographic structure of the Middle Ages and also had enormous economic and social impact. In modern times, the Spanish flu of 1918 to 20 killed up to 50 million people. Imagine the impact on those countries that have been devastated already by World War I. It would not be prudent to underestimate the potential of future epidemics. Our present one is a most serious warning. 
It has always been the case that extra human forces, divine or demonic, are imagined to be behind such terrible afflictions, divine retribution being the most common explanation. In addition, there are many conspiratorial theories that try and explain the origins and spread of the pandemics. But a more down-to-earth explanation of the present pandemic and previous ones is as follows. Viruses have been on the planet for millions of years. There are about 1.6 million viruses in mammals and birds, of which about 700,000 have the potential to infect humans. Only a few hundred have been properly identified. The remaining are at large and unknown. Unsurprisingly, their main purpose, to use a non-Darwinian word, is to survive. But they have a difficulty since they are not technically a life form, since they cannot reproduce by themselves. They therefore specialise in invading hosts where they can reproduce and then pass from one individual to another. Some species of host can harbour a virus without being sick, but this may not be the case for the next species it passes to. We could well be entering an age of pandemics, and the reason for this is that, increasingly, we are in such fundamental conflict with nature. Diseases from viruses are more likely to emerge with deforestation and the illegal trade in wild animals, for example. Forests cover about a third of land on earth, but they are being cut down, often to make way for cash crops or cattle farming. Every minute, forests the size of 35 football pitches are cleared. Billions of dollars worth of wild animals and plants are traded globally. Not every trade contributes to the destruction of biodiversity, but unsustainable and ruthless trade in wildlife destroys the diversity of nature. As the planet warms up, it is changing the patterns of disease. Insects that carry zoonotic diseases that can pass to humans, such as ticks and mosquitoes, are expanding their range and moving into new areas. Economic growth, population pressure, urbanisation, agricultural practices, deforestation, and to top it all, high mobility, especially through plane travel, are all intensifying the pandemic situation. And this is why there will be more pandemics. There are many reasons why pathogens cross species boundaries, but one of them is because of the way we are exploiting natural resources and pushing up against their limits. For example, as there is overfishing in African coastal waters, then local populations turn to bushmeat in the jungles for survival, thereby increasing the possibility that pathogens will be transmitted to humans. This was the case with Ebola, for example. Another example is of markets that trade wild animals for food, as well as for pets and farm animals. These are favourable locations for pathogens to cross species boundaries. Conspiratorial theories concerning the coronavirus abound. The most common that I am aware of include, firstly, It is a plot by China to destroy the West and take over the world. Answer. China does not need the help of a virus to take over the world. It is already doing so. And, by the way, has enormous help from the West in terms of its malfunctioning leadership, decadent societies, increasing corruption and practically suicidal policies.
Also, if that were the case, why not simply plant the virus in other countries? Why start it in your own with all its attendant risks? Secondly, it is a plan by occult powers to attack and dominate the human race. Answer. It is easy to imagine such a scenario, yes, but I start from the psychological supposition that phenomena that appear to be divine or demonic are projections of the human psyche, which is an immense reservoir of archetypal potential. Why invent occult powers when humans have endlessly proved themselves capable of immense creativity, cunning and evil? Thirdly, it is a response by nature and Gaia, the spirit of the earth, to reduce population numbers and the harmful activity of the human race in retaliation for the attack upon her. Answer. Human beings have evolved from nature. We are its problematic evolution and expression because of our consciousness. Nature, or Gaia, has become conscious through us by evolving us. It is pointless to imagine that nature has a consciousness separate from us. We are the ones with consciousness that will make or break the rest of nature on this planet. We don't have to invent any psychic powers outside of our psyche. We are nature's problematic evolved consciousness. Like all civilizations in the cosmos, there is a narrow window of time and opportunity in the development of consciousness between the opportunity for mass destruction or transcendence. We are at that point. If we are suffering now from the pandemic, that suffering is completely of our own making. Fourthly, it is the plan by a super elite to eliminate freedoms and to establish totalitarian control over the human race. Answer. Indeed, it does appear that there is a movement in this direction. More technological control, a tremendous increase in the powers of monitoring human activity and interfering with human nature. Yes, this is a movement of our times. But while the virus has accelerated technological development, and therefore all of the above, this movement existed before the virus and has understandable causes. Fifthly, it is a virus that has escaped from a military complex. Answer. This is perfectly possible, and the military of many countries have had decades developing deadly pathogens. Sooner or later, this will happen, yes, if it has not done so already. However, it seems very probable that it has crossed over from bats, which contaminated the food chain leading to humans. There are 1,400 different species of bats in the world and they are an immense reservoir of pathogens. Also, all the main epidemics of the 20th century, Mars, HIV, Ebola, coronavirus and so on, have all been zoonotic. That is, they have crossed over from animals such as chimps, bats, camels and so on. Nevertheless, I am sure the military lessons of the virus will now have been absorbed by some powers. Why go to war against your enemy when you can demoralise, paralyse and bring it to its knees with a minuscule virus, especially when your enemy has already proved incapable of defending themselves against it? 
COVID-19 is a virus that has crossed the species line and is now transmitting through its new host with great speed. The density of our populations, the compactness of cities, increasing population, the extraordinary mobility achieved by humans in recent decades, all of these factors are a result of our economic growth fuelled by our financial system. When these factors are combined with our relentless attack on nature, then diseases and pandemics result. The oceans warm, sea levels rise, countries are flooded, forests burn, glaciers melt, wildlife is threatened, biodiversity diminishes, pollution levels worsen. All this is caused by ourselves. Nothing divine, nothing demonic, nothing conspiratorial. It's our economic and political systems fueled by population growth. The variables involved are interrelated. Economic growth, population pressure, climate change. The emergence of new pathogens is just one of the results of this systemic attack on nature. Our health and well-being as a species are linked to how we define our place in nature. Seeing ourselves as masters of the universe, who can kill and sell whatever we want, is not a global recipe for survival. In the midst of this crisis, it is becoming clear how irresponsible it is merely to accept the rapidly deteriorating state of our planet's biodiversity and the climate deterioration. For decades, politicians have been hesitating. They have insisted that our economies and lifestyles can only gradually adapt. Yet the coronavirus pandemic has shown that when danger is imminent and truly felt, rapid and consistent action is possible. Tackling climate change and enforcing measures against illegal trade in wildlife is just as possible as using natural resources for the benefit of all people. We already have the technology. It is the will to act collectively that is lacking. A global economic system based on the ruthless and mindless exploitation of nature will fail. But a diverse environment which determines our well-being, keeps us healthy, feeds, clothes and shelters us must be protected as a common global good by a well-informed global leadership. What is required is not only individual policy changes, but a complete change in philosophy, a paradigm shift in not only our attitude to nature, but of our awareness of ourselves and our place in the larger scheme of things. Let this year bring great change in ourselves. Let us accept that we have created our difficulties. Let us take responsibility for them. Let us change our world or we face extinction. Let us realise it is us who have destroyed the balance of nature. Let us change our leaders in many areas of our institutional life, especially those that have led us into this disaster. Let us change to new political parties. Let us consider new paradigms and new philosophies. Let us not abandon the wisdom of the past, but do abandon its foolishness, its limits, and those ideas that are not fit for the age we live in. Let this year bring great change in ourselves. Let this be 
a new year.